Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning, a final from Progressive Field in Cleveland. It's the Indians 6, the Detroit Tigers 1. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy, watching baseball being played. And didn't I tell you that Detroit was just what the doctor ordered? Didn't I tell you that this was a chance to rack up some wins, get back above 500, make this a respectable season? And uh, boy, the Indians got off to a great start in this series, putting up some Big rallies on the Tigers early in this game, knocking out their starter Manning after four innings. And on the other side of things, Cal Quantrill. And it's our first storyline of this game. Cal Quantrill has a spectacular outing, arguably his best outing of the entire season to shut down the Detroit Tigers. So we'll get into that. We'll get into Quantrill and the rallies. And then we've got some big... um, Big picture Indians news to talk about at the end of this, or Guardians news to talk about at the end of this episode. I'm still working on that transition in my own brain, so uh, we'll see how it goes here on the podcast. So let's get into Quantrill, and man, the storyline of this game, if we want to drill down to specifics, it is high fastballs and sinkers against left-handed batters. I don't know if that's something that's changed from recent starts or anything like that, but my God, was he attacking those left-handed hitters with high fastballs. If we go over to the illustrator here, if I just isolate the left-handed batters themselves, a ton of high fastballs, a ton of high sinkers, pounding the outside with the changeup, pounding the outside edge and down with the changeup. Throwing the slider to both sides of the plate. He was throwing it into the lefties and away to the lefties, but a ton of high fastballs and sinkers. If we switch that up to the right-handed batters, suddenly those most of those high fastballs and sinkers disappear. It's a lot of sliders that he threw to right-handed batters and a lot of sinkers pounding inside, but much more in the strike zone, much more down with the sinker. Not a lot of fastballs two right-handed, only four fastballs to right-handed hitters on the day. But if we want to go ahead and isolate those strikeouts, and man, 10 strikeouts on the day, how did he do it? Uh, Four of them were on fastballs, four of them were on sinkers, two of them were on sliders. Uh, Six of them, six of the 10 were up at the shoulders, up above the strike zone, maybe just at the top of the strike zone with some of those fastballs to Willie Castro and to Victor Reyes. But if we isolate this again by the, you know, this batter, right-handed batters versus left-handed batters, the three sink, the two sinkers and the fastball that were down, that were down at the thighs were all the right-handed batters. If we go to the left-handed batters, they're all at the top of the strike zone, except for one slider on the outside edge that he threw to Badu, that he got Badu to chase on a 2-2 count in the third inning. Everything else is up and outside to these left-handed hitters. So clearly, Austin Hedges and Cal Quantrill, and sure, Carl Willis too, had a plan of attack of how they were going to deal with these left-handed hitters in this Tigers lineup. I think a very funny quote from uh, Cal Quantrill is he really, really did not want to give up Miguel Cabrera's 500th home run. And he's two away. He's two away from 500. And we faced them twice in like a week. So 
Will he do it against us? It feels like it would only be fitting if he reached such a milestone against us, right? After he's faced us so many times now since coming to Detroit. But Cal Quantrill desperately didn't want it. And that was sort of his motivation going into this game. I have to dominate because I cannot give up Miguel Cabrera's 500th home run. I said, I don't want to be in that highlight that they continue to show forever. So, uh, yeah, he really took that motivation and really ran with it to be effective today on the mound. If we uh, go over to the player breakdowns and we look at what he was throwing, you know, how much of each pitch he threw, he did throw the sinker the most. 35 sinkers, only 23 fastballs. So it is a good mix of fastball. And then he throws in 26 sliders. 10 changeups, 4 curveballs. It is a good mix of pitches. Still sinking, sticking with the sinker the most. And man, everybody is loving throwing the sinker right now. Now this is what you want to see on a sinker. Ready for this? 17 swings. 5 whiffs. Okay, not great, but not bad. Not like we've seen from JC Mejia or some of the other starters. 17 swings, 5 whiffs. But 11 foul balls, only one sinker put in play. You want to talk about missing the barrel of the bat with the sinker? You want to talk about that little bit of horizontal movement, that little bit of vertical movement extra you get off the sinker, off the four-seam fastball? 11 foul balls, only one put in play. Also, six called strikes on that pitch. It's good for a 31% CSW. His most effective pitch on the day was actually the four-seam fastball, 11 swings, six whips, four called strikes. It's good for a 43% CSW on the day. The slider was at a 38% CSW, a lot of swing and miss on that one. It's good for a total of 36% CSW on the day. And it, I know I talk about CSW every day, but just in case you're joining us and you're like, what does he keep going on about? CSW is just called strikes plus whiffs divided by total pitches. So it's a very simple stat to see basically how many strikes the pitcher was able to rack up via called strikes and whiffs. And it's a good indication of how successful they were on the mound, keeping hitters off balance, really dominating the strike zone. And he threw a ton of strikes. A 98 pitches, 69 strikes. That is pounding the strike zone. And his pitchers were pounding the strike zone all night. Karinczak, 13 pitches, 8 strikes. Parker was a little less, 27 pitches, 16 strikes. He came in in that ninth inning and kind of struggled a little bit. Classe was able to clean it up, 10 pitches, 8 strikes from Classe. So Indians pitchers across the board, absolutely pounding the strike zone. And Quantrill, this was clearly his best start of the season. I mean, up until this point, he's got 16 strikeouts already for the month of August. Six in the game against the White Sox on August 1st, now 10 here. He had 16 strikeouts for the entire month of July. He had only 14 strikeouts for the entire month of June. So is Quantrill figuring some things out or is it just the Tigers? You know, we'll have to see in his next start who it comes against. Looking at the schedule and doing some uh, basic math here, his next start is probably going to come maybe against Oakland probably somewhere in that Oakland series, so a much better lineup than Detroit. And we'll see if he continues to rack up the strikeouts, right? If that attack of of left-handed hitters up and of right-handed hitters down continues to work for him, or if he's going to have to change some things up against the Oakland A's. 
But yeah, absolutely dominating. His ERA for the month of July was down to 286. He was 2-0 and on the month of July with a 286 ERA. His ERA for the month of August so far in two starts, zero. Zero, despite... Um, this one was great because no walks in this start. His final line was seven innings pitched, four hits, no runs, no walks, and 10 strikeouts. He did walk four in that start against the White Sox at the beginning of the month, but did not allow any runs on six innings pitched. Allow any earned runs. Sorry, there was one unearned run in that game. So yeah, so two starts in a row here where he's not allowed an earned run, which is really fantastic. Limiting home runs, hasn't given up, only given up one home run in his last five starts. So really limiting that and cutting down on the walks, that is a really, uh, and cranking up the strikeouts, obviously, is a great recipe for success from Cal Quantrill, who, you got to admit, from those numbers I just told you, he is really figuring it out as a starter. And this Oakland starter will be interesting because he's faced them one time already. He faced them on uh, July 17th. He got the win, went five innings, gave up four hits, one earned run, two walks, five strikeouts in that one. So that'll be really interesting to see, uh, you know, coming back, facing them for a second time. Who makes the adjustments? Does Quattro make the adjustments? Or do the Oakland hitters make the adjustments, right? Baseball is a game of adjustments. If you run out there and do the same thing, Every start after every start or every at-bat after every at-bat, you're, you're going to get figured out. You're not going to have much success. You have to keep adjusting, right? That's why players go into second-year slumps, right? That's why they start to figure it out their third year because they finally figure out the adjustments they have to make. And in that second-year slump, people are making adjustments against them. So will Cal Quantrill continue to have the upper hand over the Oakland Athletics in his next start? Man, it is good to see a pitcher figuring it out. This is what I've been talking about, where you got to be patient with these starters. You have to be patient with these rookies and give them time to figure things out. I saw conversations going on about Bobby Bradley on Twitter. It's been going on for a while now because obviously his batting average and things have been slipping. And, you know, his strikeout rate is, you know, increasingly getting higher and higher. In fact, I looked it up. Uh, total tangent here to our Cal Quantrill conversation, but Bobby Bradley, I looked up the strikeout rate. I think it was somewhere in the 30s or something like that. And I looked up past Indian sluggers to see if they also struggled in I, their second year with technically their rookie year, depending on how many at-bats they get in their first year, um, to see if they also struggled with strikeout rate, and I looked back at like Manny Ramirez and Albert Bell and Jim Tomey and Travis Hafner. Those guys were all in like the 20s, low 20s when it came to strikeout rate. Bobby Bradley was up there in like the 30s, high 30s, 40s when it came to strikeout percentage. So not good, right? You don't, you don't want to be up that high. Um, let's see if I could pull it up here on the... Uh, on the MLB app and see if we can get a strikeout percentage. We'll get it here in a second. But another player I looked at was Jesus Aguilar. And I think Jesus Aguilar is the perfect comp to Bobby Bradley because when Aguilar was here, Aguilar struggled. He was up in that 30, 40% strikeout rate. Um, but he went on, he went to Milwaukee. He figured some things out. He ended up uh, down in Miami and he's a pretty good hitter for them. 
Yeah, right now, Bobby Bradley's K rate is at 35.6%, but his walk rate is at 10.3, so it could be worse, but we have to see if that can come down. Just like Jesus Aguilar was able to make the adjustments, we have to give Bobby Bradley time to make adjustments. I mean, he's had how many games up until this point? He's had less than half a season. He's at 61 games. He hasn't even played half a season in the majors, and you're worried about his strikeout rate and his walk rate? Give him time. So a total tangent from Cal Quantrill, but I think we pretty much summed up that Cal Quantrill was dominant in this start. Only hard hit six times, and uh, really, really fantastic. Did face a little bit of trouble in the first inning, but was able to get Miguel Cabrera to hit into a double play to get out of it. And after that, I mean, really settled in. One, two, three in the second. One, two, three in the third. One, two, three in the fourth with two strikeouts. One, two, three in the fifth with two strikeouts. Oh, man, just setting them down until a single in the sixth inning. He had kept them off base from Badu. So that is really, really good. Two more strikeouts in that inning, in the sixth inning. And then in the seventh, he does allow a single to Cabrera, but gets Eric Haas to ground out, ground out back to him for that final out. And Quantrill is one of those pitchers where he keeps it keeps it all under wraps, right? The Kluber style, the Klubot style, where he keeps all the emotion under wraps. Um, Tristan McKenzie does the exact same thing. They just keep it together, keep it together until they make that final out. And then all the emotion comes out. And Cal Quantrill lets out a roar, literally let out a roar as he made that final out. It was so pumped to have that seven innings, shutout innings. Uh, great start from Quantrill. I think you know where I'm going with MVP for the day, but let's talk about the offense first because, man, the Indians did what I've been begging them to do all season, and they put together a rally in the third inning, and then moving into the fourth inning, they put together some freaking rallies. And I do not think Austin Hedges brings much to the table offensively. I think, yes, defensively he's good. I think managing these young pitchers, he's done a great job. But offensively, we can all admit he's a little bit of a black hole in the lineup. I mean, 178 batting average, 486 OPS, and that's after two hits tonight. But you got to give credit where credit is due, and he was the spark that ignited both rallies in this game. And uh, so, yeah, Austin Hedges, great job leading things off in the third inning with a single. Ernie Clement doubles then into left field. And Hedges, I love the close-up shots of Hedges chugging around the bases. That dude is trying to run. He's trying to be fast. He's. I, I know. I understand. I am the same kind of runner. I am not fast, but I feel like I'm going fast when I'm out there. I watch, you know, I see pictures of myself. I watch video and I realize, oh, no, I'm a very slow person. But I feel like I'm running fast. And that's got to be how Austin Hedges felt. Rounding second, chugging into third. Um, so he, he's there. We got runners on the corner or on second and third for Miles Straw, who singles just over the shortstop's glove, just sneaks it over, uh, Castro's glove at shortstop and drops it into left field. It brings in Austin Hedges to score runners at the corner. And Ahmed Rosario does ground out to second base, but it brings in the run to score and he beats the throw to first base. And that is where Ahmed Rosario's speed is a total game changer. 
We've talked about this. This is not going to show up in the batting average. It's not going to show up in the OPS. But beating this out, allowing that run to come into score. Now, at the time, you don't know how important that run is going to be. I mean, that's only the second run of the game. So you don't know how important that's going to be. And it's just huge that he's able to come in and score and really uh, give the Indians a nice run there and keep a rally going. You know, keep a runner on base. So huge from uh, Ahmed Rosario there because if he's doubled up, he doesn't get that RBI. So that is where it will show up. Jose Ramirez then doubles into right field. It would be his only hit on the game, but a big double to keep the rally going. And then Bobby Bradley would double uh, into the corner. Both runs would come in to score. Bobby Bradley fueling off. I feel like Bobby Bradley is going to be the kind of hitter where when there's a rally going, he joins in. And when the lineup is cold, he is going to feel that chill. I just feel like he's the kind of hitter that is really going to be rolling with the team. He may never set the tempo for the team, but if the team is rolling and the pitcher's on his heels, Bobby Bradley is going to be the guy that is really going to make them pay. And he made them pay here. He was actually two for two on the day with that double, two RBIs, before he had to leave with a knee injury. And it's unclear if that knee injury happened. You know, he made a couple of stretches for for the baseball at first base. Um, did it happen on any of those plays? And in fact, an incredible play from Ernie Clement. In fact, if you allow me to do another tangent right here while we're in the middle of this third inning rally, um, Ernie Clement at third base made a fantastic play, a Nolan Arenado-esque play going into foul territory and throwing across his body. And then Ahmed Rosario did late in the game too. Uh, when I think it was the seventh inning for Quantrill was still on the mound. Made a fantastic play moving to his right and throwing back across his body. So great defense from the left side of the infield tonight. But did Bobby Bradley hurt himself on that? Or on Harold Ramirez, a single up the middle, Bobby Bradley tries scoring from second. It's a great throw from center fielder Derek Hill. Haas slaps the tag on. And Bobby Bradley kind of has an awkward dive at the plate, an awkward slide at the plate. So is that where he hurt his knee? Uh, still no word from the Indians how that knee is doing. I'm guessing, I wouldn't be shocked if he has the day off and Owen Miller is at first base and uh, give that knee a day to rest. Hopefully it's nothing serious. Hopefully he just banged that knee really hard on the dirt and just needs a day to let it rest. Uh, so yeah, that would be that rally there. Uh, four runs come across and Bobby Bradley has the big hit in that inning. Uh, Harold Ramirez would eventually move to uh, first base uh, because you already had Ernie Clement and Owen Miller and Jose Ramirez DHing, so you didn't really have anyone to move around the infield. You didn't have a utility infielder uh, really to put in there. So Harold Ramirez comes in to play first base. Harold Ramirez, who, by the way, is wearing number 10, if you didn't notice. That was Jake Bauer's number. I'm guessing he went to management and said, hey, now that Jake's gone, can I have 10? So uh, if you see Harold Ramirez out there in a 10 instead of a 40, that's why. Uh, but then uh, the Indians come up in the fourth inning, and after Owen Miller is called out on strikes, Austin Hedges gets it started again with a single to center field. Austin Hedges setting things up, earning Clement singles on a line drive to center field. Hedges moves all the way to third, and then the big play, I think the one that really um, cemented things for the Indians, uh, Miles Straw lines it to right field. Victor Reyes makes a heck of a diving attempt. I mean, all the credit where credit is due to Victor Reyes on this one. 
He just trapped the ball and he probably couldn't even tell. I mean, when you're diving like that, I don't think you can really tell if you trapped it or if you caught it clean. It probably felt to him like he caught it clean, but clearly on the replay, you can see that ball bounce up into his glove. He even kind of knew it. Like they showed his reaction when they called the runner safe and he even kind of knew it. He just shrugged his shoulders and walked back out to right field. So it allows... Uh, the run to come in from third. Austin Hedges scores from third. Uh, Ernie Clement moves up to third because he was moving on that. And Miles Straw is safe at first. And then Ahmed Rosario with a sack fly. Again, things that are not going to show up in, you know, in the box score does show up as an RBI again. But getting it done how he has to get it done, bringing that runner in from third with a sack fly to center field. So, that would be the Indians' two runs, and that would be all they need. Miles Straw would steal second, but Jose Ramirez would ground out to end that threat. So a great job by the Indians' offense, and that was all they needed. And if you look at this box score, you could see it clear as day. It's the bottom of the lineup, Hedges and Clement setting things up for the top of the lineup. Two RBIs from Straw, two RBIs from Ahmed Rosario, two RBIs from Bobby Bradley. You know, and four runs scored from the bottom of the lineup there between Austin Hedges and Ernie Clement. So that is a recipe for success. If the bottom of the lineup is setting things up for the top of the lineup, that is going to always, always be a recipe for success on offense. So that was huge from Hedges and Clement. There were too many people on offense to to spread out MVP for the day. I would love to give an offensive one and a pitching one to Cal Quantrill, but really, Hedges, Clement, Straw, Rosario, Bradley, even Harold Ramirez didn't have any RBIs. He had two good hits on the day, uh, including a double, but it just, you know, the situation being what it was didn't bring anyone in to score. So great job all around on offense. In fact, the only starter without a hit on the day was Owen Miller. Um... So Cal Quantrill, great job, best start of the season. You get MVP for the day. Uh, quickly, before I wrap this up, Karen Check out of the bullpen. Great job, two strikeouts, a nice clean inning. It looked like he was going to start with some struggles. I think he started 2-0 to the first batter, but got things under control. Blake Parker, it was just a rough day. There was an infield single, then there was a bloop. Nobody was hitting anything hard, it just kind of was just dropping in for him and it, he got into a sticky situation ended up giving up a single to the right side that let a run come in class a comes in shuts the door with two strikeouts was dominant gets the final one with that slider down and into a lefty man he attacks from the catcher's view the right side of the strike zone uh really really pounds across the strike zone on that side so great job from Class A to save Parker. Just looked like he was missing with his splitter. All his splitters were kind of below the strike zone. Um, so Parker had a tough ninth inning, a little bit of bad luck there, a little bap bap working against him. And Class A is able to come and shut the door, get the save because there were runners on. It creates a safe situation. So Cal Quantrill, MVP for the day. Man, it was a good baseball game. That was a really good baseball game for you Indians, Guardians fans. And speaking of Guardians, we haven't talked about it yet, but the fact that the Indians organization, the Cleveland baseball organization, did not check, or maybe they or maybe they did, that's the devious part of it, right? Maybe they did know that there was a roller derby team in Cleveland that already had the state of Ohio trademark on Cleveland Guardians. 
We've also heard, I know there's a, also a roller derby team called the, uh, oh, uh, the Burning River, right? Isn't there a Burning River roller derby team? But yeah, there's a Cleveland Guardians roller derby team. They had a state trademark on the name Cleveland Guardians. The Indians organization did something where they like went to a small African country and put a claim in there. So that way they have a paper trail and then did a federal trademark for Cleveland Guardians. So it's some shady stuff. Will it probably get worked out with some kind of monetary settlement? Probably. But still, it's just, it's bad business. For something that's supposed to be a positive transition away from, you know, a hurtful name into something that we can all get behind, to know that there's some shady stuff going on in the background, it does muddy the water a little bit. It's a, it's a bad look for this Indian's front office, who usually does a really good job of keeping things above board for being a good role model on how to run an organization, it muddies the water a little bit on this whole Cleveland Guardians transition. So I'm sure things will get figured out, but uh, we've got to call, you know, call out the Indians or the Cleveland baseball organization uh, for these tactics here and make sure everybody knows that this was not fully above board. There was some, there was some stuff going on in the background to get this trademark through to get this you know the rights to Cleveland Guardians through so we'll see how this plays out but eh, that kind of sours things a little bit on the whole transition to Guardians and then the other big piece of news is that the organization did sign a new lease deal they're gonna stay in progressive field I think it's like until 2036 but then there's like 10 more years of options that'll take it all the way to 2046 the state the county and the city are all chipping in money, a significant amount of money to keep uh, renovations going, to keep Progressive Field, the gem that it is in Major League Baseball. But the Indians organization is also chipping in money. I think they were chipping in the biggest chunk at $150 million. So yes, we do not like to see taxpayer money going to baseball stadiums that billionaire owners own, but... It is true that the economic impact of having a Major League Baseball team in the city is huge, in the billions. So for that fact, that we all pitch in a little as a state, as a city, as a county, right? I mean, it is an economic driver in this city. Think what the All-Star Game did, you know, having it in this city. Think about what those playoff runs did in this city, right, with the the hotels and the restaurants and all the shopping that probably went on because of that, it is an economic driver to the downtown area. So I get it. I get all those organizations all kind of coming together. And Progressive Field is going to continue to be one of the elite ballparks in Major League Baseball because of this. Um, they've already, I don't know if the artist renderings out there are actual concepts that are being discussed or just things that people have had fun with, but there are some interesting plans, renovations that are going to go on. Uh, you, you're going to see Progressive Field continue to transform. I'm sure they have plans for those shipping crates out in right field, which are an eyesore, which was a plan that never kind of came to fruition. It kind of had to be rushed in the last round of renovations. So 
I think the upper deck is really going to change at progressive field and uh, kind of be a spot where you don't feel like you're, uh, you know, segmented away from all the cool stuff, right? You don't feel like you're stuck in the 90s up there uh, while everybody in the lower bowl is in the 2000s, right? In the 2020s. So that is something that is going to happen at progressive field. I think this is a good thing. I think this is a good thing, even though taxpayer money is being used for this. I think it is a good thing for the region, for the city. I think Progressive Field is something we can all be proud of. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully more people in the stands. I mean, they had 24,000, I think, in the stands for a Friday night against Detroit, which is a pretty good crowd down there. Uh, they were pretty raucous there in that ninth inning as Class A is getting that save. Um, I'm sure the big fireworks show after the game helped that attendance. But yeah, that helps a ball club. That really does help a ball club. All right, we're going to get out of here. That's all my thoughts. I got one last detail from this game for you. And that's if you go to the Baseball Savant page, one of the things they show you is the top exit velocities, the top distances, the top pitch velocities, and the swings and misses. It's kind of always up here as a header. And just to show you how much the Indians, the Guardians dominated this game, all five of the top exit velocities go to Indians hitters. All five of the top distances go to Indians hitters. All five of the top pitch velocities go to Emmanuel Classe. And Cal Quantrill had more swing and miss than every other pitcher in this game combined. So that is an impressive way to dominate a game. When you open up Baseball Savant and you see the Block C logo everywhere across those top numbers, that lets you know the Indians really dominated this game. All right, that's all my thoughts. I'm getting out of here. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. We'll be back tomorrow. We got another night game against Detroit. It is going to be Eli Morgan taking the mound. Let's see if he can get his second win of the season for a guy who's really been pitching well lately. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. Uh, join in the conversation on that game. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on the game, and we'll discuss them on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play them back on the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. Baseball Morning.